Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs, and thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, and business. Today's episode, Falling Apart. In analyzing political trends, clients, friends of the firm, often ask myself, my colleagues, what's really the thing that's driving American political life? And we give that question quite a bit of thought. And years ago, we started to come to the view and increasingly are of the view that that one trend, as we say in our recent political brief, that one trend to rule them all is what we describe as social capital collapse. And this is a topic that has been observed quite a bit, especially since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, but it often gets discussed in the framework of politics and not in a broader framework of the trend that is driving American life. And it is our contention, which we will discuss today, that not social capital decline, but social capital collapse is the one trend that most describes, tragically, contemporary American life and is reflected increasingly in signs all around us. Joining me today for the conversation, as always, my colleagues, Johnny Fluger. Great to be here. And Jeremy Fershcott. Great to be here. Thank you. So what I'd like to do for those who are not familiar with the term of social capital decline slash social capital collapse is first just talk about what we mean by that and then just give a few top-line indicators that I think very strongly substantiate this contention that the country is in a state of accelerated social capital decline, which, again, we would call a state of collapse. So just a few things um, for, for our listeners to think about. First, between roughly the turn of the century, this century, and the 2020-2021 period, the rate of overdose drug death rates increased five times, from something around 20,000 to something around 110,000. So that increase, I think, is unprecedented and is something that we have to pay close attention to. In addition, alcohol-induced death rates more than doubled, and perhaps most shockingly, the national suicide rate has risen 37% since 1999. So those things alone, I think, are, are, are indicative of something very serious occurring with human capital, with social capital, but it's more than that. In 2021, U.S. life expectancy fell to its lowest level in more than 25 years. And if you look at the 2022 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, that indicated that something like 59.3 million adults, or more than 23% of all adults, suffered from some mental illness. And something like 48 million plus people aged 12 or older had some kind of substance abuse disorder. So, again, you take all that together, and it's pretty clear that something deeply problematic is unfolding with the American people. It's not just political. It's much more worrisome than politics. Social capital is a lot more than social capital. It's human capital. It is the traits, the habits, the attributes of a well-functioning person and persons plural. In the brief that we published that's available on the library page of our website, we define social capital as interpersonal relationships, networks, and the associated benefits. It's that plus this aspect of individual human capacity. We like using the term social capital, but at core what we're talking about is human capital. And by using the term human capital, I'm not referring to what workforce training types focus on, skills, vocational certificates. We refer to social capital to make the point that there is this 
fabric of life that needs to take shape in order for American citizens to go out and be fulfilled and happy and successful and performing as workers. And the idea is not some esoteric scholarly concept. This has fundamentally practical application and implications. If you don't have high levels of social capital, you cannot have the kind of commercial republic that is the United States. These are, these are the behaviors that make association life, that make commerce, that make the public square, that make everything that is familiar to us as Americans possible. And what's remarkable is how few political and business leaders actually talk about social capital and social capital decline. And without a shift that prioritizes building social capital as a urgent endeavor of not only government but also business, it's hard to see how the problem is turned around. I think one of the reasons why people don't focus on it that much, or at least people in the political world tend to not focus on it that much, is because it's a problem that originates outside of the political system. It doesn't really depend on who won which election. It also is not easily solved by policy. And so it dwells outside of just the standard political framework, which is focused on elections and policy. And also the knowledge class tends to be high social capital, lives in areas that are filled with social capital. So most of the knowledge class, the elites, to use that term, don't live with the negative consequences very much of social capital decline or collapse. So we see this, by the way, in a lot of commentary recently, and elites befuddled by the seeming contradiction of material prosperity, but popular unhappiness. And so you see a lot of journalists and others sort of questioning whether average people really understand their own circumstances. There was a Wall Street Journal feature on this, and the conclusion of the reporters was that this was based on political polarization, that sentiment about how things are going derives entirely from uh, whether the party that you vote for is in office or not. Not that there might be trends occurring below the surface of political life that are shaping people's outlooks. And by the way, elites of both ideological tribes make this accusation. So, for example, you have someone who I think it's safe to say is center-left, Fareed Zakaria, asserting this point. This profound sense of despair is perplexing because I don't find much objective data to support it. The U.S. economy grew at an astonishing 5.2% in the third quarter of 2023. And also you have it coming from the center right. So, for example, from an Arthur Brooks. We live in the greatest country, most charitable, upwardly mobile place in the history of the world. And we're like, ugh, look at the news. We also see this among those farther to the left than Fareed Zakaria, such as one television personality, Mehdi Hassan. Bidenomics looks like nothing short of a miracle right now. And yet, ask Americans these days about the economy, and most of them think and say it's in really bad shape. It's our institutional view that social capital is the ballast in society. It is the thing that makes society stable it's the thing that anchors the population. And because that ballast is declining, 
the ship is rocking a lot more than it used to rock. Practically, when people have fewer ties to one another, whether they're family ties or friendship ties or associational ties of other types, then they are more dependent on government. So political changes become much more important. Politics dominates people's lives much more. And then, of course, on a day-to-day level, they're lonelier, they're less healthy. There are all kinds of problems that don't get mitigated by support networks that people should have. And in terms of political volatility, if you look at social capital decline, what you find is that the movement of the Republican Party from Mitt Romney, who was the nominee, of course, in 2012, to Donald Trump in 2016, and then Trump defining the party from 2016 on, that really is the story of social capital decline. The voters, especially the white working class voters, whom Romney was unable to secure in 2012, Trump's much more populist campaign that spoke to that population's fears, anxieties, and hopes, that really shifted a whole bunch of voters uh, from the Democratic column to the Republican column under Trump. And that shift, I think more than any other, really explains the difference in the election results between 2012 and 2016. And so, for example, 12 of the 15 states with the sharpest declines in marriage rates from 2000 to 2018 voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. And there's lots of other data that have been explored by researchers at AI and USCLA that I think further bolster that case, that the political volatility, as it's called, that we've seen in recent elections really is, again, the political manifestation of the social capital story, which, of course, affects politics, but much else uh, even more important. I'm sure there are listeners out there who are thinking, wait a second, social capital decline has been discussed since at least the 1960s. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was probably the greatest scholar and political leader who documented these trends you know, going back you know, 50, 60 years. What's new? So what is this? Why are we talking about this today when it's been something that's been at least part of the political conversation for many decades? And I think there's a couple answers to that. One is that he was really discussing social t- capital decline in very specifically defined, somewhat narrow communities. And the theme of his work really was about how the country had failed those people, not so much how the suffering of those people imperiled the broader American project. And so something has happened in recent years, I think we would argue, especially since the early 2000s, where the degree, the velocity of social capital decline has reached a point where it has crossed some kind of a threshold. There's some kind of qualitative and quantitative amount of social capital decline that is having a deeper and broader effect on the entire country, not just pockets here or there. I think one difference is that in previous decades, there was more of a focus on how to help people who were affected by social capital collapse. For example, parts of education policy, work on charter schools and school choice. I think what's changed is that as we view it, the effects of social capital collapse don't extend far beyond the people who themselves are unfortunately afflicted by the kinds of things that we've described in this podcast. There are two policy areas that are great examples of this phenomenon. One is fiscal policy and entitlement reform. It's hard to imagine a politically viable solution to our country's fiscal problems, just given social capital collapse. The second example is foreign policy. It's hard to imagine... uh, 
foreign policy, a military strategy that relies on large amounts of military manpower just given social capital collapse and the actual state of the American population. So, Jeremy, this is a key point, and I think this brings us to this uh, part of the conversation, which is that not only does social capital collapse impact politics, but it actually frames and, I think we would argue, constricts the available policy options. So it's not a question of, gee, what should be done about this? The problem is so big that it really does limit the policy options themselves. So the two examples you give, I think, are outstanding ones, which is just to go a little bit deeper, and then you can comment again. The idea that amidst social capital collapse, that political system is somehow going to be able to contemplate, let alone implement, serious reductions in social welfare spending is preposterous. If anything, that spending is going to go up dramatically as social capital collapse continues. And again, as of right now, it shows no signs of abating. And as you pointed out, it is not easily addressed by policy solutions at all. So when pre-Trump Republicans get up and talk about, gee, we really have to get back to a conversation about sort of green eye shades, budget discipline, let's start with non-defense discretionary spending, or let, you know, just with entitlements more narrowly, uh, you know, how in the world is that conversation going to take place? Retirement policy in Chile, a country with a much smaller and more homogeneous uh, population that's probably healthier than American society right now, is not a good starting point for understanding what social welfare policy should be in the United States today. It might have been a good starting point 35 years ago or 40 years ago, but the terms of reference based on what we see, based on the analysis we've done, have changed and the political system has not caught up to them. I want to give two examples, Jonathan. One would be, and this gets to a point that you've alluded to so far, the scale is so much greater than it's ever been. The scale is vast. And we saw that during COVID where the scale of pandemic relief was huge. And perhaps as importantly, the scale of fraud was huge. I think the Government Accountability Office, GAO's latest estimate related to some of the pandemic relief programs was that $300 billion was subject to waste, fraud, and abuse. That means that untold numbers of Americans engaged in a program to defraud the United States government. I doubt as a percentage of the population affected as many Americans engaged in fraud uh, like that during World War II or World War I or other periods of mass mobilization, just to use a convenient benchmark. And then the second thing I would point to was a very... I thought insightful comment that North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who's a former information technology executive, made, I think, in the second Republican debate, obviously prior to dropping out of the race and endorsing former President Trump. And he said something to the effect of healthcare is the only industry in American life where we have injected $90 billion of information technology and gotten nothing or almost nothing to show for it. And I think he was primarily was talking about electronic health record systems, which is a big priority of President Obama's administration. 
But it's striking to look at all of the spending on healthcare, including in areas such as IT, and then look at the actual population statistics right now related to health, where, for example, we have just in the last approximately five years, sexually transmitted infections have gone up 7%. I mean, you would think if you're wealthy enough and sophisticated enough to spend, say, $90 billion on electronic health records, you could exert rational control over a problem like STDs. And this is a data point suggesting the problem of social capital collapse has gotten out of hand. The tools that we have that we are deploying, which are conventional tools of the last 30 and 40 years, are not working. And it's costing us a lot of money financially. So if you think about government spending, if you think about non-government healthcare spending, and if you think about the appetite or even the ability of the United States to be engaged internationally, especially in military conflict or related operations, social capital collapse makes all of those things enormously fraught. And so I think people who hearken to a previous era who imagine, oh, we're going to cut a few taxes and we're going to slash spending or we're going to turn a few knobs here or there, the knobs that were on the dashboard previously are no longer on the dashboard. Uh, and even if they were, they would not be working uh, at all. So I think that's, I don't think most of the policymaking system has really recognized that. And so much of the conversation that is occurring is, I think, really just, it's fake, right? It's not descriptive of reality whatsoever. But I think we should talk for a moment about why, almost equally, Republicans and Democrats don't like to talk about social capital collapse. There seems to be, overall, an aversion to taking this topic seriously and to really having an agenda focused on restoring uh, social capital. I'll offer a couple thoughts. One is, I think that Republicans think of themselves as optimists, and Republicans think of themselves as inheriting this tradition of having a deep faith in the beneficence of the American people. And to discuss social capital collapse is somehow or other contradicting those ideas, those principles, right? that language, right? that whole identity of confidence in, in the common man and confidence in the country and sort of Reagan's exuberant optimism, which was very potent and I think very successful in its time. So from the Republican side, again, a deep reluctance to sort of get into this topic, which again is, seems very, very pessimistic. For Democrats, I think Democrats really are the party of self-actualization and of individual freedom of choice in habits and appetites. And so to really get into social capital decline in some way or another calls into question certain choices. And Democrats don't want to do that, right? That is being judgmental. That is sort of asserting an absolute truth that I think makes them very, very uncomfortable, not only intellectually, but sociologically. That reminds me of Robbie George of Princeton, the famed conservative who published a book called, if I have it right, Making Men Moral. That's kind of what you're alluding to. That whole subject is uncomfortable. I think in terms of Democrats, Jonathan, there's a sociological component to this, which is to say that the community of, of Democrats that exists in the Washington, D.C. area is overwhelmingly neoliberal. 
at, at the very highest level. Think of the people who worked in and around the Clinton administration. And if you look at their professional interests and their careers, they have been, I think it's fair to say, very focused on understanding how private enterprise and government can work together in some sort of partnership that advances the interest of companies and also advances the interest of the public sector. But the definition of the public sector, what its interest is, is kind of open-ended. And for example, to me, like a paradigmatic anecdote displaying this is the investment career of former Vice President Al Gore. His most famous business affiliation since he was defeated by George W. Bush was his service on the board of Apple. He wasn't on the board of a manufacturing company in Indiana that was dealing with distressed working class union employees. And that to me is an indication of where elite Democrats' mind has been at. One of the great stories of the financial crisis was the ultimate conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And if you look at who are the executives at Fannie Mae going into the financial crisis, they were all people who had been working in the Clinton administration. And they had the view, if we can make ourselves wealthy in the process of making mortgages more accessible for lower income Americans, that's great. But that's a lot different. I mean, if you actually dig into it, then working to make the lower income Americans more capable and prosperous and put more ballast in their lives. What do you say to the listener thinking to themselves, these guys are just total pessimists. They're accentuating the negative. Why isn't this just sort of uh, the tendency that we have studied, you have studied, I should say, um, toward elite pessimism and this sort of seeming irresistible quality of highlighting the problems as opposed to the positives? Well, maybe bad news sells, and this is really clickbait. But uh, no, in all seriousness, there is there is a long history of American pessimism going back to the founding of the country and the strong interest in understanding the reasons for the decline and collapse of the Roman Empire. And there was this kind of gloom about how the United States could avoid the fate of the Roman Empire because that was seen as where momentum would take the United States, which was into decline. So there's this declinist streak in American history and political thought. There's this tension. There are people like Warren Buffett whose brand is optimism. And uh, I think Warren Buffett said that uh, it's a mistake to bet against the American people or something like that. When we published a brief on this topic some years ago, available on our library page, I would just point out that one of Warren Buffett's largest holdings has been the dialysis company DeVita. So is that optimism or or a healthy respect for pessimism? So I believe the brief that, Johnny, you're referring to is titled, Is Warren Buffett Wrong?, which is our way of saying Warren Buffett is wrong. And what you notice about Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letter that he issues every, I think it's spring or so, is he talks about, yes, never bet against America, but in the context of the American system. Warren Buffett doesn't speak so often about the American people. He talks about a system of rule of law and market economy, these sort of structural features. 
people appear to be fairly incidental to his analysis. And I think that's because when he made his first stock trade at the age of 12 in the 1940s, Omaha looked very different than contemporary American life. And so, again, I think that Warren Buffett is basing his analysis on an America that really no longer exists. Now, of course, America has all kinds of reservoirs of of strength and brilliance and goodness. But again, those reservoirs appear to be receding. And I'm not sure that folks such as Warren Buffett appreciate that as much as they should. Jonathan, back to your question about pessimism and optimism. I think that one can be optimistic about Americans' ability to be creative and resilient and to try to find solutions, yet at the same time recognize that at a population level, we're in a crisis that we've never seen before. I think there's room for some optimism there, but I think the data doesn't lie, and it's pretty alarming. So in the spirit of being constructive, if we were asked by business leaders slash policymakers what is to be done, I think we've already acknowledged and we all agree that these problems are not easily solved by policy interventions. But to the extent that some kind of policy can make a difference, what might be worth exploring? Well, I think it's hard because there are a lot of potential solutions which are just impractical or uncomfortable for various reasons. In some of our other work, we did an in-depth comparison of addictions and disorders comparing China and the United States. And we found that actually China is a lot less drug use across most categories. And uh, it's probably related to the fact that uh, there's much stricter drug enforcement in China. So it's hard to just take a policy recommendation like that and focus on it just because there are all kinds of practical obstacles implementing those types of enforcement-based solutions. I would point to the work of the British business consultant and demographer Paul Moreland, who has written mildly controversially in the UK about the fertility rate there. And he has made the point that, at least in the realm of, of family formation, that units that have fewer children than than his replacement rate should effectively be penalized through the tax code and people who have uh, two or more children be rewarded. And in the past, I think the policy consensus in D.C. has said that is the stuff that dictators or quasi-dictators do. We're not going to do that. But I think, as we've seen in this debate over the child tax credit, where there's been opposition from the likes of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm behind using the tax code to encourage family formation, and there probably are going to be ways that are sought to constrain it. So I don't know how that ultimately plays out, but I think there's going to be a lot more family policy in the tax code. That's my long-winded way of, of saying that. So I'll add to that, Johnny, a few things that I think would be beneficial. The first is policing. I think it is essential that in any society that there is a relationship between crime and punishment. And I think that when you don't have punishment of crime, that is a very destructive force that accelerates social capital decline. So I think policing is absolutely essential, not just for the benefits of safer communities, so that's critical, but there's a deeper message that I think the relationship between action and consequence. And so I think that's number one. Number two is I just think the prioritization or incentivization of work. It's essential in my view that we move more men 
of working age into the workforce. According to some of the research that's been done, uh, the current workforce participation rate among that cohort is around Great Depression levels. And I think that is a huge source of problems. So again, incentivizing work in a number of ways, including reshoring, including immediate expensing, and similar such uh, policies. And I'll add my third and final, and uh, something that I've talked about before on this podcast, is reversing drug legalization and reversing recreational drug use, whether legal or illegal. I, I think, again, that uh, drug abuse, even, even recreational drug use that's not abuse, it has a self-reinforcing quality to social capital decline that we already see unfolding. And I just think the evidence is overwhelming. So that's my top three or so. Let's end with just a, a brief discussion. We referenced it before a little bit on healthcare and spending policy, but there are other important implications for business of social capital collapse in terms of trade policy, antitrust policy, and some other areas, and taxes as well, not just the spending side, but the tax side. Anything that you want to know, Johnny or Jeremy? I think the hipster antitrust community has an appreciation of this. I think it's one of the less understood factors driving their view that there needs to be more antitrust enforcement. I think they feel that big companies have uh, a record amount of leverage over your average citizen, in part because the average citizen is maybe less equipped to deal with the big company than he or she would have been 50 years ago or 100 years ago. If you just take the terms and conditions of use of a big tech platform, I mean, what individual person without any legal training is going to have the ability to understand that legal document. I know that it might come across as a somewhat frivolous example, but I think it's instructive in terms of their view of big companies assembling power in part because they have all the leverage over the citizenry. I think there's a, there's a kind of related but converse phenomenon, which is that although large companies may be distrusted by some, they're also looked to, many employees look to their employers as a source of stability because so many other parts of their life may be unstable. And so that has implications for how companies think about compensation, for example, how they design employee benefits, health benefits, retirement benefits, for example, the relationship that the employer plays is, is different in a society where a social capital is in a state of collapse. So I'll add a couple things. One is on labor policy with declining social capital, much more constrained labor supply. And I think there'll be this great competition among employers for high social capital employees. In America, I don't think we really have so much income inequality. We really have social capital inequality. And yes, there's some correlation, but they're quite different. But I think, again, the worker with high social capital becomes increasingly valuable in the environment that we've described going forward. I think also it's worth just taking a minute to talk about taxes. If the current social capital collapse persists, it's hard to envision a world that doesn't have significantly higher corporate taxes and individual wealth taxes. The money's gonna have to come from somewhere. It's not gonna come from you know, working families. It's not gonna come even from upper income families. There's just not enough money there. It's gonna have to come from uber wealthy individuals and the largest corporations. So I think that will very likely be 
the response of policymakers in the coming decade or two if this trend continues. And I think it's something people start thinking about now because, again, there are not going to be a lot of easy answers to the revenue hole that is going to be bearing down on us here very shortly. Johnny and Jeremy, thank you for a sober, but I think a very informative discussion for our listener. And I want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode. Please, if you have a chance, give our podcast a really solid rating. We appreciate that. As Johnny referenced a couple times, please go to our website, baronpa.com, the library section, for some past political risk briefs that explore related topics. And we hope you will join us for a future episode of the Political Risk Brief. Thank you.